All children are, are invited to go to Children's Chapel right out this way with Beth Tenhave. Please join me in a spirit of prayer. Lord, you now have set your servant free to go in peace as you have promised. For my eyes have seen the Savior who you have prepared for all the world to see, a light to enlighten the nations and the glory of your people Israel. Amen. Please be seated. Okay, so I said the Song of Simeon in the words of the Book of Common Prayer, not the hacked-up version of the New Revised Standard Version, which fails the poetry test once again. But oh, how many times have I said that prayer at night as one of my bedtime prayers. O oh Lord, you have now have set your servant free to go in peace as you have promised. Every time I'm longing for peace, when I'm agitated and stuck and trapped once again in whatever spiritual malaise or conflict I'm in, this is a go-to prayer, so I recommend it highly. It's worth memorizing. O Lord, you now have set your servant free to go in peace as you have promised. Let your heart speak into that prayer. Let your longing go into that prayer. So we're celebrating the presentation this Sunday in the temple, and I realized that I actually had an experience of doing something similar that may shed light on this obscure temple ritual. As many of you know, my children are adopted. Uh, they're adopted from Guatemala. And when you adopt internationally, you adopt first in the country of origin, and then for safety's sake, you readopt in our country. So when I got Tim and Martha home to Chicago, we had to take them to court. In fact, it's set up in such a way that the children are suing us. Very strange. <laughs> and you go to this sweet courtroom in Cook County up on about the eighth floor of a federal court building. And this special court for adoption is very comfortable and laid back and peaceful as a playroom. And on the judge's bench, there's a special shelf right in front of the judge. And when you go forward to adopt, you put your child on the shelf. <laughs> of course, you keep a hand on the child. <laughs> and the judge talks to your child just to make sure they want to be adopted. Remember, Tim is five months old at this point. <laughs> and through the magic of the law and the magic of judges, the child who came in, maybe not quite your son, leaves as your son. This is performative speech at its best. The judge says, you are the son of Jared and Allison, and so he is your son from there on. This is the presentation of Tim to the judge of Cook County. And it's similar and sheds light on what's going on in the presentation of Jesus in the temple. So hold on for one second, some background. The ancient world, the ancient Mediterranean world, this patriarchal assembly of cultures, 
had tremendous anxiety about paternity. Now, maternity is a biological fact, hard to dispute. Paternity is a cultural construction. Because there's always a little uncertainty and suspicion around who the dad is. So my title for this sermon is, Who's Your Daddy? <laughs> because rituals developed both in the pagan world and Israel to establish paternity through sacrifice. You would take the child, and the child would be claimed as the son of the father. Follow this. The son of the father in the temple when a sacrifice was enacted X number of days after the birth. Until that time, the father, and remember these are patriarchal households, would just kind of ignore the son. And the son wasn't his son until this ritual. I believe this is deep in the background of the presentation of Jesus in the temple. It's part of the ritual action that's happening, and we need to understand it if we're going to understand what the original hearers of the story were hearing. So you have to put your ancient world goggles on to take a look at this. There's lots of layers, because that's the atmosphere of the general Mediterranean world. In Israel specifically, the firstborn son belongs to God. So you take the child to the temple to redeem the child. In other words, to compensate God for the child you're not giving to God, because you're planning to leave with the child. So first, paternity. Second, redeeming the child. Third, sacrifice. Why is sacrifice necessary to do any of these things? Because the cultural role of sacrifice is to both join together and to exclude. To create community and family on the one hand, and to push competing claims off to the side. So when we share the food of communion, we become one body. And, traditionally, we create another body outside of ourselves. The son is adopted into the family, and that puts competing claims and threats aside. So paternity, redeeming, sacrifice, all packed together in this story. So why do we need to know this background? Because this background brings forward the meaning of the story. Think about it. Whose child is this? Who's the daddy? Who's the redeemer? And what does the community look like that this child will make? And where is the sacrifice? The irony of the story, which underlines the meaning, is that the paternity of this child is God. So taking this child to the temple is not confirming the paternity of Joseph. It's confirming the paternity of God. This is the Son of God. Interestingly, we never hear in this story, and Luke is, likes the particulars, we never hear about the redeeming moment. 
the giving of five shekels to buy back the child? Does this indicate that this child needs no redeeming? This child is the redeemer. This child is the redemption. Child of God, this child is the redemption. Finally, the sacrifice. When Simeon sings his song, he says, a light to enlighten all the nations. Suddenly, this circle of the community formed by our God is thrown wide open. Not a family, not an ethnicity, not a nation. Wide open. A light to enlighten the Gentiles, meaning us. This covenant is now wide open. And then in those haunting, foreshadowing words of Simeon to Mary, we get a hint of the sacrifice to come. The sacrifice that ends all sacrifice. The sacrifice of Jesus. I'm dwelling on this story because it's all about who our God is and what our God does for us. It's all about who our God is and what our God does for us. And Episcopalians are famous for rushing past the God stuff and getting to the doing stuff, the moral stuff. We read the baptismal covenant and we just skip the Apostles' Creed, the description of who God is, and get right to those vows. I'm going to hold us back from that for a second. Because it's about who God is and what God has done for us. We see that best in the person of Simeon. This wonderful figure who is propelled by the Holy Spirit. For three times in that little paragraph before his song, we hear that the Holy Spirit rests on him. We hear that the Holy Spirit reveals to him. We hear that the Holy Spirit guides him. He is a soul permeable to the Holy Spirit, permeable to God, letting, the God, letting God be the motion of his life, the agent of his life. And we hear it in that wonderful first sentence. Lord, you now have set your servant free to go in peace as you have promised. Who's the subject of that sentence? The subject of the sentence is God. Thank you. <laughs> I love when I ask the questions and it freezes. <laughs> it's English class. It's God. The subject of the sentence is God. And Simeon is the object of God's agency and action. Someone said to me about a month ago, Jarrett, when was the last time the subject of a sentence that you used about yourself wasn't you? When's the last time you weren't the subject of one of your sentences? And they went on, and this is the important part. They said, when was the last time God was the subject of a sentence about you? When was the last time God was the subject of a sentence that described your life? 
As in, Lord, you now have set your servant free. As in, Lord, God, you delivered me. God, you set me free. God, you enlightened me. God, you healed me. God, you spoke to me. God, you opened a door for me. God, you made a way. God, you gave me courage. God, you helped me refrain. When was the last time God was the subject of your sentence? Where God was the main actor. God was the first person. God was the subject. And we were in the recipient role. Part of me loves the presentation story because here we have this praise of Jesus and the kid has done nothing. Nothing. He hasn't taught. He hasn't healed. He hasn't done a miracle. He hasn't made a lot of bread. He hasn't gotten disciples yet. He's done nothing. And I wonder if this is a message to us about adding some doing nothing to the rhythm of our spiritual life. Pope Francis has a great quote about this. I do like Pope Francis a lot. And he likes to talk about the importance of wasting time. And he says, one cannot know the Lord without being in the habit of adoring. Of adoring in silence. Wasting time, if you will, before the Lord. If we want to be as permeable as Simeon, as we want, if we want to be as available to Sim, as Simeon, if we want to be as moved by Simeon, by God as the first person in the sentences of our life, if we want to go from a third-person curiosity about God as an object of our interest to a first-person intimacy and relationship with God, we silence ourselves and we listen and put ourselves in the presence of God and adore, and wait, and listen, and hope, and pray. This is part of our journey. We nuance the rhythm of our life that wants to get busy with the doing, because the doing will not be sustained unless it has the prayerful waiting. The doing will not be sustained unless it has the deep adoring. The doing will not be sustained unless the first person in the sentence that describes our life is the God who sets us free to go in peace. Amen.